Howdy folks, this is Jimmy Aiken, and I wanted to let you know about a special offer. When you become a patron of the Cordial Catholic Podcast at $8 or more a month, Keith will send you a copy of my new book, The Bible is a Catholic Book. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Hi. Hey. Welcome to the Cordial Catholic. This is a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, a non-denominational evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. You see, as I was looking into the roots of my Christian faith and into the ancient Catholic Church, I began to realize that what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, what Catholics around me thought they knew about their own faith, was often completely wrong. It was often misinformation or rumors or misunderstandings for all kinds of reasons. This podcast is meant to fill in those gaps between what we think we know the Catholic Church teaches and what the Catholic Church actually teaches. We have real Catholic conversations with real Catholics about real Catholic issues from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this episode is absolutely fundamental, absolutely the idea of what I had in mind for the podcast when I started it. It's a little bit of insider baseball, perhaps, but I think it's valuable for everyone, non-Catholic, new Catholic, or those Catholics who have walked away from the church, perhaps, or been there all along. Everyone, I think, would benefit from this episode on the Second Vatican Council what it was, and more importantly, maybe, what it wasn't. I'm joined by Father Blake Britton. Father Blake has spent a long time studying this topic. He writes eloquently about it, and he speaks even more eloquently about it as well. It's a fantastic conversation. I can't emphasize that enough. You need to listen to this episode. You will learn a ton. I'm so grateful that Father Blake was able to join us on the podcast, and I think you'll love what he has to say, so please do listen. This episode is brought to you in part by my sponsors, my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Guys, I thank you so much. I am so grateful. I am so humbled. I am so amazed that I am able to do this week after week, and it's you guys that I have to thank. Thank you, everyone, of course, for listening to this podcast, but a special thanks to those who are sponsoring it. Even one or two dollars a month, even the price of a cup of coffee every month, helps this show to continue, helps me to afford to be able to do it, to pay for sponsoring and hosting and those kinds of things. I'm very grateful, guys, and if you want to give even one or two dollars a month, go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And thank you. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your financial support as well. I'm so grateful, guys. Now, without any further ado, here's my absolutely fantastic episode with Father Blake. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, and welcome back to the podcast. This week, I am thrilled to be joined by Father Blake Britton. Father Blake is the parochial vicar of St. Mary Catholic Church and School in Rock Ledge, Florida. He has a bachelor's degree in philosophy, a master's degree in divinity, and his fantastic writing appears in a number of places, including Diamonds in the Rough, homilies and reflections on the mystery of suffering, and as part of Bishop Robert Barron's Word on Fire Ministries blog. I am thrilled to have Father Blake on the show. Father, thank you for being here, and welcome to The Cordial Catholic. Well, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) And I love the jingle. It's like it has sort of a Jack Johnson kind of vibe to it. Yeah, I know. I really appreciated your dancing through the introduction. (laughs) I mean, it was great. I loved it. (laughs) That was was great. From one millennial to another, I deeply appreciate the music. Absolutely. (laughs) 
Oh, fantastic. You know, when I play that uh, that jingle, uh, when I edit the podcast back, normally both kids are running around the house screaming and, and breaking things. And uh, they both stop because they love that jingle and just start doing a little dance. That's awesome. So the real method for that madness comes through. It's to calm the kids. You know? it, it does. It does. So if they're ever freaking out, I can, I can just play the podcast and calm them <laughs> down. Awesome. Oh, oh, fantastic. Goodness. Well, you know, thanks for being here. This is such a fantastic topic and I'm, I'm really excited to dig in, dig into it with you. Um, even, even just yesterday, you know, I tried really hard not to, uh, get pulled into online debates or discussions because they often aren't very, aren't very fruitful, you know? Right. right. I famously almost never, ever read the comments on my blog, which I've, I've had for a number of years now, but I do occasionally get calls from or, or texts from my dad, my, my beloved dad, who will say something like, can you believe this person wrote this about you on your blog? Like they, those comments are so, so rude. And I, Dad, I don't even read the comments. <laughs> you know, thank you for reading them. Thank you for your concern for me. You know, I could sympathize you know, with you on that because with some of the blogs that I have with Word on Fire, I, I, I'll read through them, of course, and I do respond here and there. But if there's anything that's particularly volatile, I'm like, you know what? Now I prefer staying in the state of grace today. <laughs> so let me just stay here. And let, me, let me pray for this person. Oh, exactly. But you know, so I did get caught into into a debate yesterday, uh-huh. and of course, it was on. Interestingly enough, some of these uh, these Vatican II kind of memes mm. that you hear sometimes, and right. So I, I think our topic is so is so prescient, is so relevant, and you know. When I read your article at the Word on Fire blog about this topic, I, I thought you'd be a fantastic guest for the podcast because you take away a lot of the polemics and and the political mm-hmm. politicization and the and the different camps and you know and and you were able in in the article that I read to just speak so succinctly to this with shedding all of that baggage that mm-hmm. seems to come with this sometimes and. You know, this might be a bit of an odd topic for some of the podcast listeners because our, our range and, and, and the goal of this podcast is to reach anybody from non-Catholics to new Catholics especially, but also to Catholics who've left their faith or have practiced it their whole lives. But I think it's so necessary to understand the, the Second Vatican Council in its right context because this will, I think, especially help new Catholics who, who encounter different experiences of the faith in different corners of the church. And I think too, especially of those Catholics who may have actually walked away from their faith, who may be practicing their Christianity in a different context or or not at all because of some of the ways that the Second Vatican Council was maybe incorrectly or mistakenly implemented. So I am so happy to have you here to walk us through through this idea. And I'd like, I'd like to start, if we can, by walking sure. up to the council itself and by first asking you if you could explain what exactly is a church council and what do these things do? Yeah, great question. So we've had roughly 21 ecumenical councils in the past 2,000 years of Catholicism. And the word ecumenical comes from that beautiful Greek word koinomia, which means the whole world. Right. So this is a council, a gathering of the church of the whole world in order to address a particular topic or a particular issue. For example, we know that the first several series of councils in the history of the church were to clarify teachings on the person of Jesus Christ. They combated Arianism, monophysism, all these different uh, heresies. This is where we have councils of Ephesus uh, was an ecumenical council determining the motherhood of God as Theotokos. That means that she's the God bearer. But that at the same time was defending the divinity and the humanity of Christ, who is fully human and fully divine. So ecumenical councils are gathered together, always convoked through the inspiration and the grace of the Holy Spirit at various times in church history in order to address serious issues or topics. Sometimes these topics are dogmatic in nature, meaning they're to clarify teachings of the church. And other times, such as in the Second Vatican Council, they're pastoral in nature. How do we, as a church, address and bring the dogma, bring the teaching of the universal church to the world. This is really fascinating to me. I mean, I am uh, an evangelical kind of non-denominational convert to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And I know for our our non-Catholic Christian listeners or non-Catholic listeners who have have no Mm -hmm. practice of faith at all, this is a really interesting idea. 
idea because I mean, in in my faith context, we would have really had uh, at a denomination, maybe in in one stage mm-hmm. of of my uh, my faith journey. But then, in the context of a, a non denominational church, I mean, our decisions are made on a scale of whatever the pastor thinks makes the most sense for doctrine, right. and then may, and then those around him, maybe a small group of elders, we'd call them, maybe or, or church leaders or, or a steering committee or something, would make these decisions. Right. Right. Right in that very very small context, but what you're talking about is uh, is the idea of a council that you know, as you've indicated, has roots in very early church practice, but then mm-hmm. uh, is a body that is able to, in a larger context for all Catholics across the world, make these kind of decisions and and work out doctrine and 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 dogma and that kind of thing. Right. right? Absolutely. Well, the church has been entrusted with what we call the fullness of truth, meaning the deposit of faith. So we've been entrusted with the truth of the gospel, with the the truth of Christ. And so we don't invent dogmas. We don't invent teachings. Our duty is to be faithful to what Christ has given us and to articulate them clearly for the faithful so that they can follow Christ more devoutly. So that's one of the purposes of these councils, is to clarify the truth of the person of Jesus Christ, to clarify the truth of the Blessed Virgin Mary, to clarify the truth of the of the church and what we call apostolic succession. So that means the first 12 apostles and all the bishops that follow them, all these different things that the Lord established during his earthly life and through the gifts of the seven sacraments. These are what councils come together to articulate, to clarify, to express to the faithful, and then also to help the faithful have the tools they need to more intimately know the person of Jesus in his life. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant way of putting it. I appreciate that. And that stands in stark contrast to, I think, what a lot of non-Catholic Christians might experience, where, hey, if this church is teaching something that I don't necessarily agree with their interpretation of this piece of scripture, well, I can go down the street to a different church that teaches that a different way. And what the Catholic Church is saying, if I understand you correctly, is no, 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 this is not the the, the case. There is a deposit of faith, mm-hmm. and we are then tasked with, um, in these councils, uh, in one means at least, of of figuring out what that says, and then and then providing the faithful with some guidance on how to understand that. Right. Well, we hear in the sacred scriptures, it's not you who loved me; it's I who first loved you. You see, the beauty about Christianity is not that we are a group of people trying to seek a God in the sky, but rather the God in the sky came and sought us. <laughs> and so he's the one that establishes the means of communication. He's the one that establishes the truth. He's the one that establishes the way of relationship. And so our only duty is to be faithful to that way. And the church is always, throughout all of her 2,000 years, this is why the church fathers are saying, the church is always reforming, not in the sense that she's constantly changing her teachings, but rather that she is constantly contemplating the truth of Christ who lives within her heart through the Eucharist in particular, but all the sacraments. And upon contemplating those truths, she's learning more and more how to follow this person who's first loved her, who died for her, and who saved her. <laughs> That's an excellent way of putting that. <laughs> all right. So then in the context of the Second Vatican Council, um, can you give us a little bit of context into what the goals of, of that particular council were? Most certainly. Uh, first, we have to realize that the last major council in the church before Vatican II was the Council of Trent. And a lot had transpired in the nearly 500 or so years uh, after the Council of Trent ended. So that was in the 16th century. The Council of Trent took place in the 1500s and was closed um, and was ran under various popes. But St. Pius V is the pope that's typically associated with an outstanding council, by the way, um, mainly convened to combat and to clarify against the teachings of Protestantism. Um, and so the C- Council of Trent was really brought to fortify the faith, to in some way circle the wagons and say, okay, there's a lot of confusion going on here about sacraments, there's a lot of confusion about priesthood, there's a lot of confusion. So let's just take this opportunity to really reevaluate the basis of the faith. And then, of course, in, uh, in typical sort of Catholic fashion sometimes, they said, well, you don't like images and you don't like sacred music. Boom, we're going to build Baroque cathedrals. <laughs> just, you know, we're just going to spew all this beauty all over the place. And naturally, you get, of course, the Counter-Reformation Reform, the Baroque period, the Rococo period, and all these beautiful churches, right? And art and art and architecture. Well, a lot had transpired in the life of the church between that 
in the 20th century, not to mention two world wars, um, the technological revolution, which started taking hold in the 60s. And then finally, of course, you have this new invention, unfortunately, of different there, particularly the atomic bomb. So there's a lot of things that are taking place within history that the church now needs to revamp herself to address adequately. And the question for the Council Fathers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was quite simple. And it's reiterated by St. John the 23rd on October the 11th, 1962, in his opening address to the Second Vatican Council, when he says, it is time for us to bring anew, to bring afresh, he used this beautiful word, aggiornamento, which means renewal, This to bring afresh the beauty of the gospel, to bring afresh the beauty of the gospel in the modern world. So that was the real impetus for the Second Vatican Council. You know, and that's interesting to um, to think of that idea of of revamping or renewing the, the faith or the fancy word <laughs> that I'm not going to try and repeat. <laughs> you can't say a giornamento. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is joking. <laughs> I, you know what? I could. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to. <laughs> you oh know, th- this idea is it, it, it fascinates me especially. And what, you know, I don't know why it was, but one of the first things that I read when I was looking into the Catholic Church was were some of these documents on the Second Vatican Council, because I had heard of it as a thing and didn't know what it was and wanted to kind of understand the history of, of the Catholic faith. I think I read a couple of books on Trent and then jumped to books on, on Second Vatican Council to kind of get a sense <laughs> of these two right, landmark right. councils. And it, it, it strikes me as as so interesting because you you see a lot of renewal of of faith movements in non-catholic christian churches you know there's a there's a big movement which i think i think is a it's an interesting thing to watch in that a lot of these old ancient uh, traditions are being renewed in some of these evangelical mm-hmm. churches now. There's a lot more use yeah. of, of liturgy and of these kinds of things and, and candles of all things, you know, that were that were forbidden <laughs> for so long. Candles are are coming back in, in fashion. Man, I, I wonder, is there a church that used to use those already? Or no, never mind. It's no, like... no, 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 no. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> you know, so the the idea of 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 a council to kind of renew the faith. It's like the it's like the idea that um, you know, see, the Bible's written, and then nothing happens between the Bible and right, and, right. and me today, which was, of course, it's not the case. You know, these, these councils, and and it makes it makes sense just logically that the church needs to continually be asking the Holy Spirit for renewal, what that renewal yeah. looks like, and there are constantly new things, new things to be spoken about. Um, you know, I, I, I think of, I, I had Dr. Moira McQueen, who's the executive director of the Canadian mm. Catholic Bioethics Institute on the program recently. And she talked about, you know, there's just, you mentioned technology and she talks, talks about reproductive technologies, the, the pill and birth control and these things. You know, the, the church has to speak out on these, on these new topics because the Bible does not expressly address these kinds of things and then you know in in terms of the traditions of the church the liturgies and and how the church evangelizes and these kinds of things these there's not a handbook we don't we can't open the bible to a certain page and and see these things explicitly written out you know you should do this 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 and this you know so so the idea of a church council just makes so much sense i i i think in that context Von Balthasar says something really beautiful. He's one of my favorite theologians, Hans von Balthasar. He says, the sacred scriptures are not a course to be dissected, but rather they exist within a body to be lived. And that body to be lived is the church. And so the church is the locus. It's the place where the spirit actively acts in the world. <laughs> so it's not as if the Catholic Church is this sort of institution on the side that follows the teachings of Jesus, but rather the church is the way that Christ continues to be in the world. <laughs> it is how he, it's his historicity. It's his way of being in history. It's the way that you can touch and see him. This is why he says at the nation, the gospel of Matthew, go out to all the, the ends of the earth, baptizing onima in the Greek into the very essence, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is why when he converts Saul, of course, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Me, me, me. He's talking about himself because he is in the church. Whatever you do to the least of my people, that you do unto me. So, yeah, you see that in the church and the fact that this is a dynamic living organism that we call Mater Ecclesia, Mother Church. And that throughout history, she is constantly seeking and striving for ways to more profoundly proclaim the truth of her great lover, as Chesterton will refer to her, this great romance of Christianity, uh, 
her lover who is Christ who died for her. Father, you are quoting all all the greats. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, they're amazing writers. So <laughs> oh, amen. And you know, I love that picture of of the church being Christ in history, like the historicity. Yeah. That's such a uh, an incredible picture to think about that the church standing as Christ in history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have we have to reclaim that. Because what's happened in modernity, and this is just because of various circumstances, there's no particular person or group's fault, it just happened, is that what's happened now is that the Catholic Church is seen as as simply a historical institution. And even by some Catholics, they sort of see it as just, well, this is just an old church, <laughs> you know, as opposed to, no, this is the dynamic activity of Jesus in the world, is the church. Jesus exists body and soul, body and soul. And this is also why he ascends to the Father before sending forth the Spirit, so that his body and soul can exist in this new, profound, and tangible way within his mystical body, the Church, um, and through the sacramental life of the Church. Yeah, so it is, it's a beautiful thing to recognize and to realize. <laughs> That's so well put. So yeah. what, what were some of the, the, the um, so the goal, the overarching goal is this kind of, um, this renewal, this reexamination yeah. of the faith. What were some of the things that they aimed to to tackle by 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 looking at in closer detail, like what were some of the those things they were the, the council was looking to address when it opened? Yeah, so really, the best way to understand the council appropriately, and this is something that I've I've dubbed the logic of the council, if you will. Um, there are four major constitutions, four major dogmatic documents. Right, you have Sacrosanctum Concilium on the liturgy, you have Dei Verbum on the sacred scriptures, Lumen Gentium on the church, and Gaudium et Spes on evangelization of the modern world. And it's best to understand them in that order to understand the mission of the council. Before anything else, the Second Vatican Council and I'm quoting it directly, paragraph 10 of Sacrosanctum Concilium, describes the sacred liturgy as the source and summit of the life of the church. The source and summit of the life of the church. And so before all else, the council wanted to reflect upon and renew, not replace, not replace, which is one of those words that we'll maybe reflect on later in the podcast on the difference between renewal and summit. Renewal takes what is given and breathes within it a new life of appreciation. Replacement tries to get rid of it. So Vatican II replaced nothing. It renewed, it sought to renew everything, right? So you have the liturgies of source and summit. So bringing us back to reflecting on what is the sacred liturgy essentially, particularly through the writings of the church fathers. Let's remember that between Trent and Vatican II, there were many patristic writings that had remained undiscovered. For example, the Didache. The DDK is one of the most ancient writings that we have of the church, just outside the scriptures, written around roughly the year 90 AD. It was only discovered in 1883. We didn't know it existed before that. We didn't have any documentation of that. Well, that document is a game changer <laughs> in the life of the church. It supports so much of tradition. It supports so much of liturgy. And so one of the main purposes of the Vatican Council as well was to integrate this new patrology, which means the study of the church had been discovered in the past centuries, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries. And part of that was a renewed understanding of the sacred liturgy. From that, of course, comes a dynamic understanding of sacred scripture. This is inspired and sort of, um, inspired is not the right word, but this is a response to the fact that there had been a growing sort of appreciation for, for scripture in the past five centuries of the church since Trent, um, particularly among the lay faithful. And this is also influenced by Protestantism. The fact that there were a lot more lay people had access to sacred scripture. So what can we do to really reevaluate this beauty? This was totally in tow, by the way, with Pope Pius XII and his different documents um, that he published, the establishment of the Biblicum in Rome, which is the, the study for sacred scripture, the college dedicated to that. So reflecting on sacred scripture, liturgy and scripture are the two hinges from which the church is born. And so from that comes Lumen Gentium, the identity of the church. Now reflecting upon the sacred liturgy and the sacred scripture, who we are as the mystical body of Christ. And then after we discover who we are, then we go out to the world and evangelize it. And only then. So you see that there's a very streamlined and beautiful logic here of the church fathers that you can't put the cart before the horse. So you can't evangelize the world if you don't want the churches. And you can't know what the church is if you don't know sacred scripture. St. Jerome says ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And you can't know the scriptures unless you know what the font of the scriptures is, which is the sacred liturgy. The one thing that, is, that existed before the New Testament was the sacrifice of the mass. 
crisis to the Holy Eucharist before he did the New Testament, before he inspired any of these writers to write these New Testament documents and text. So that's the basic logic of the council. <laughs> In summary. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's a lot to uh to summarize. Sorry, I'm trying to like, put it all in there. This is like over a decade of study I'm trying to commence it to hey. <laughs> this single thing. So <laughs> that's a fantastic job. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You know, so I, I mentioned earlier uh, Dr. Moira McQueen, who I had on the show, and she also sits on the uh, International Theological Commission at the Vatican, and and she talked right. about you know doing bioethics as a young mother and a theologian in the 1970s following Vatican II, and how yeah. how countercultural it was for her and her husband to be practicing an openness to life when birth control was this new thing and a novel thing and. Lots of Christian denominations were jumping on board to support it, and there was this thought that maybe the church, in the so-called spirit of Vatican II, in quotes, <laughs> would open the door to Catholics in this area as well. And as Dr. McQueen explained, it, it didn't, and the right. church held to its traditional and, and richly theological, deeply spiritual approach to contraception. Mm. But there's this lingering idea of the spirit of Vatican II, in air quotes here, it yeah. kind of crept into and, and continues to creep into nearly all areas of Catholic life. And I wonder if you could unpack for us what this idea of the spirit of Vatican II exactly is. Sure, no problem. It's, <laughs> it's funny because in the seminary we had sort of a running joke that anytime someone said the spirit of Vatican II, someone else would go, ooh, <laughs> you know, the spirit. It's so like were, a ghost, were you, you know? holding like, yourself back when I was I saying was. <laughs> <laughs> You said it so many times and I was ready to go, ooh, the spirit of Vatican II. <laughs> so, yes, the spirit of Vatican II was a term that became very popular immediately after the council, what we call the post-conciliar period. So this is after the close of the council in the mid-60s. And, and then it really has lingered on in the 70s, 80s, and even until now. And this, unfortunately, this phrase was employed on a very frequent basis to mask uh, really people who were trying to push their own agenda in particular things that were actually never taught by the council. Um, and we've seen a lot of follow of this. My article for Word on Fire that you're referring to in the beginning of the show, that was one of the main purposes of writing it, was drawing out this distinction between what we call the council and the pair. The pair council were this group of thinkers, theologians. It's also a culture, by the way, the fact that the council took place in one of the most uh, vehement sort of uh, upheavaled times in not just American history, but world history. Right, so you had the Vietnam War going on. You had um, the the crazy '60s of the sex, love, and rock and roll kind of you know um, notion. So all these different things. There's rebellion. There's philosophical deconstructionism. All these various things are taking place in the environment of Vatican II and are influencing the people who are thinking around Vatican II. But also, they're influencing the sentiment of the faithful. So what happened immediately following the Council was that you had particular individuals going now to their respective dioceses, their respective countries, their respective areas, universities, seminaries, and now using Vatican II, or quote-unquote the spirit of Vatican II, to promote their own interpretation of their own agenda. What they wanted the council to be actually was. A perfect example of this would be something like the sacred liturgy. You would hear people say that Vatican II got rid of Latin. When that's not mentioned in a single paragraph of the Second Vatican Council's document, but yet people who claim to be supportive of Vatican II say Vatican II doesn't want any masses celebrated in Latin. Well, that's just not the case. What's happened is they've used the Second Vatican Council to now mask their own intention and their own sort of disdain for the Latin language. That's just one small example of many examples that also exist outside the liturgy. As a reaction to this group, there was another group that was formed. And that, of course, is the extremely conservative or quote-unquote traditionalist group of Catholics. And they are reacting not to the council itself, but rather to this misinterpretation, this misapplication of the council. And this is why when you speak with some of our brothers and sisters who are more traditional in their bent, I remember, for example, being with some seminarians from the SSPX at, a, at the pro-life march. And I spoke with them for a long time. We've had over an hour conversation. And I asked them, so what do you think about the Second Vatican Council? And they have their own expressed opinions to share that I won't repeat here. But what I will say in general is they said, um, they said, well, the main, one of the main things is, is you know, that it rebukes tradition. Um, it got rid of the Latin mass. And they started giving all these things. And I said, 
No, actually not a single one of those things happened. Where does where is that in the document Sacrosanctum Concilium? They're like, oh well, we've never read the document Sacrosanctum Concilium. <laughs> like, well, there's the problem, right? So all those things have led to what we call now the spirit of the council. So as one bishop at our seminary told us when he came on retreat, he said, anytime you hear the phrase, the spirit of Vatican II, presume that person has not read any Vatican II, <laughs> you know? And, um, and so that's, you know, part and parcel, sort of whenever you hear the spirit of Vatican II, that's what's being referred to. Now, that being said, there's a positive sense of this. And our beloved Pope Emeritus Benedict, at whose name every head should, should bow, you know, in my opinion. He's just one of the most holy and amazing popes we've had in church history. But he speaks about what he calls the true spirit of the council. And this is a spirit of continuity, meaning that the council, just like all the 20 councils before it, is building upon and continuing this great endeavor in history of bringing the gospel to all people in a way that is beautiful, in a way that is understandable in a way that is relatable, but also dignified, solemn, but also simple, that's pious, but also able to inspire the hearts of the faithful. So that's the basic sort of gist of the spirit of the Vatican II. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm thinking as you're saying that, when you, when you ask the seminarians you're speaking with, uh, where does the document say that? I, I think of how we, we do apologetics as Catholics, like in general, you know, you'll, yeah. you'll frequently yeah. encounter these kind of questions, uh, you know, oh, you, you do this or this, you know, you pray to the saints, you do this as a Catholic, you know, you say that the Eucharist is Jesus is real, you know, where does the Bible say that? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, our, 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 our frequent response um, as Catholic apologists is often to go back to that text and like actually look at what the Bible says about these things. So, it's it's funny how you know our church is so big, yeah. uh, and there's so many there's so many different uh, you know we're all different we're all individual people doing our own thing, and it's a lot of people in the mix here. So it's funny how we are often, or sometimes at least, even evangelizing within the church itself and saying, "Hey, well, you believe this, but where does the church actually teach this? So where does yeah. it actually say this? Yeah. Or where do you?" You know, that's an interesting yeah. that we we do that with you know inside of the church it, itself. Well, you hear that even with slanders against the church of modern society or on, on basic media. You know, the Catholic Church hates gay people. That's something you hear all the time. I hear that all the time as a priest with my youth group, you know, as a parish. And I always ask them, where, where is that in the catechism? Where is that in the church document? Like, where has that been published that we hate gay people? Where, is that, where has it been published that we hate women? Where has it been published? You know, where is that church teaching? Well, they've never read the catechism. They've never read any documents of the church. So they're informed by informers. And this is something that we need to reclaim in Catholicism. And this is something, by the way, that the Second Vatican Council strongly encouraged. And that's going back to the sources. Don't allow yourself to be informed by informers. Go to the source itself. This is what they called ressourcement in French, which means resourcement, right? And so the church fathers in the, in the Second Vatican Council strongly encouraged the lay faithful to read patristics, meaning the writings of the early theologians of the church. That was something that was requested by the council and encouraged to contemplate and to meditate on sacred scripture on a regular basis, to pray the liturgy of the hours, which is something that was asked for by the council, encouraged by the council, not just for the clergy, but for the lay faithful, but many lay people. And that is a very traditional, beautiful prayer of the church. Um, So there's all these sort of things that people have heard Vatican II say, or the spirit of Vatican II, without actually going back to the source itself. So one of my main endeavors as of late has been to push people to actually read the documents themselves, particularly the four major uh, constitutions, to see what they teach, and then to constructively reflect upon them and not to just trust the opinions of the fringes. Yeah, you know, I think about I had Jimmy uh, Aiken from Catholic Anthos on the podcast uh, a while, a couple months ago now, uh, talking about he wrote a book called Teaching with Authority that kind of unpacks how to understand church teachings. And I asked him, you know, what's your number one tip for people trying to understand what the Catholic Church teaches? And his answer seems so simple, it almost seems ridiculous, but it's, it's never done. And he said, well, go look at the catechism. Go yes. look, at what's the actual, <laughs> so look at the actual documents. And you think, well, yeah, duh, like, here we are. Because you're right, you hear in the media, you hear from um, non-Catholics, and even from Catholics themselves, these things that the church supposedly teaches, but we've lost that 
ability or that recognition that, no, we have to go back to what the Catholic Church actually says, yes. you know, reflect, pray about, and, and then embrace those teachings, not what we hear from other people or, or hear from, from, God forbid, the media, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or different elements, but the actual teachings of the church. And, and I love that you are, you are doing that so well for us. <laughs> I think I, I really Thank appreciate you. that. Oh, you know, you're more than welcome. I mean, it's, it's my duty as a priest to, to open up the heart of God's faithful to this. So, But in particularly when it comes to the Second Vatican Council, Vatican II and reclaiming Vatican II is not just a way to lead to the renewal and reform of the church. It is the way. People can have their opinions on what's best for the church this time. But the Holy Spirit gave his opinion through an ecumenical council. <laughs> and so whenever a council takes place, particularly an ecumenical council, it's not just like, like the synod that's currently taking place in the Amazonian synod or a synod on the youth and the family. Those are synods and they have some form of weight, but they're not as significant and as stalwart as an ecumenical council. That is the Holy Spirit through his magisterium saying, this is the direction that I desire my church to move in order to, to seek the salvation of souls. And so if we're really going to renew, if we're really going to help the Catholic Church grow in the third millennium, the groundwork has already been laid for us within the documents of the Second Vatican Council. If we're only authentic to them, we don't make them ambiguous, we don't misinterpret them, and we don't read them as skewed by our own personal opinion. <laughs> that's, that's so well said. I think now of those non-Catholic listeners, those maybe former Catholics mm. who left the church because of some of the confusion of, of how Vatican II, this, this spirit of Vatican II stuff um, mm-hmm. was maybe misunderstood and misimplemented, um, and who maybe found a more personal, more relational, or more dynamic, and frankly, sometimes more demanding faith in some of these non-Catholic Christian circles. Mm-hmm. I think in particular of a couple that my wife and I knew uh, in our non-denominational church in, in the, you know, when we, before we became Catholic. They were former Catholics who just didn't feel like they knew Jesus in mm. the post-Vatican II church that they grew up with. So I, I wonder what we can say about how Vatican II is maybe misinterpreted and misunderstood yeah. and some of the fallout in terms of the Catholic faith that was presented to a whole generation or more of Catholics. Yeah, oh, most certainly. This this is my wheelhouse, <laughs> and uh, and only because I grew up with it myself. I think we I think well, we both grew up in that in that sort of generation. But me as a cradle Catholic, I grew up really experiencing the fallout of the misinterpretation of Vatican Council. And of course, there are beautiful things that I experienced that were implemented properly um, by the Second Vatican Council on many parochial levels. But there are also many things that were misimplemented. So one of the main things, of course, that is the current point of contention, which is very ironic, is the sacred liturgy. And the reason why I say it's ironic is because that was actually the first document published by Vatican II fathers, because they were sort of like, yeah, this is the one we can all agree with, right? Let's go on to the harder ones, you know, like Gaudium et Spes, and evangelizing the modern world. <laughs> like, it's the complete reverse. It's like, oh, no, the liturgy is the one that we have the most contention with within the church. So... What is the purpose and focus of the liturgy? That shifted after the Second Vatican Council, again, not by the will of the council, but by the misinterpretation of it, to where the liturgy became now sourced and focused on what we call anthropocentrism, meaning on my immediate desires, on the ego. So what makes me happy? What kind of music do I like? What do I think it should be like? I don't looks. I, you see how the ego there is sort of emerging, as opposed to the liturgy in the end is not for us. The liturgy in the end, the sacrifice of the Holy Mass is for the Father, before anything else. It's for Him. And to share His sacrament of reconciliation with the world. And so this is why the priest traditionally faces east, which is to show his unity with the congregation, actually. <laughs> so it's not that he's turning his back towards the people. He's rather now representing them as their spiritual head in the person of Christ to the Father as this ministry of reconciliation which St. Paul talks about. Now, from that, of course, flows the Sacrament of Holy Communion, where the people now participate in the reconciliation. But again, the main focus is always orientation towards the Father. This is why we say ad orientum. That just doesn't mean towards the East. That means orientation. The whole liturgy is properly oriented towards the Father and the sacrifice of the Son and the grace of the Holy Spirit. That was lost. I don't understand. 
And that was led to a lot of fallout. That's where you started getting things implemented into liturgy that should have never been there. This is where you started getting, you know, a praise and worship band standing on altars. You know? And of course, I'm exaggerating here, but but uh, this is where you, but this is where you did get some more dangerous things, such as cloud masses, which were a real thing. I mean, uh, when I first heard about them, I was in shock, and I thought this has to be like an SNL skit, you know. <laughs> and I looked them up. I said, these are real things to where they were trying to make so mundane and profane the sacred with maybe I, I presume a good in, a good desire to evangelize the people, but it wasn't worth what we lost, you know. Um, and so naturally, when we lose focus on Christ and his sacramental presence in the Eucharist, well, of course, the people of God are going to feel like they're not being Jesus. That's a very obvious fallout. So now what, I'm need, what I need to do is I have to go try to find stimulus somewhere else. And when I go to this local non-denominational church, I'm very stimulated. They have a great hand, raising up their hands. The, the pastor's preaching with a lot of passion. Well, that's just all supplement for a living encounter with Christ in the Holy Eucharist that wasn't properly catechized or focused upon after the Second Vatican Council. So and there's one example. Yeah, and that's a fantastic one because I can, I can see exactly what you mean. If you lose an understanding of what the purpose of the Mass is and the centrality of Christ in, in the Eucharist, uh, if you lose that, then of course it doesn't. It's not going to feel personal. It's not going to feel relational. It's not going to feel like you are communing with your Creator in this kind of sacred liturgy. It yeah. becomes an, an encounter of whatever doing these different rituals and rites. But I, I can see exactly how that begins to lose its meaning, and, and you would look for that kind of aspect somewhere yeah. else. And another huge part of this too, Keith, that we have to focus on, of course, is the pair council and the, even their influence on church architecture and on church music. We can't underestimate that. Um, I'm from the state of Florida, and we're a mostly church that after the Sigmatic Council for various reasons, uh, mainly because something called the Florida Martyrs, which is, I would love to do another podcast just on the Florida Martyrs with you sometime in the future, but we don't have time for that. But <laughs> I, just, I just, honestly, I just assume that the alligators got them. Is this what we're talking about? I don't know. <laughs> I'm no, from Canada. No, no. <laughs> oh, no. So, no, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. But anyways, in, in the Southeast, particularly in the state of Florida, there are not many churches built before the 1950s, 1940s, 1920s. And so a lot of them are built post-conciliar, and they're not built according to the norms of the Second Vatican Council. They're, they're built towards according to the norms of the Paracouncil and towards, again, that sort of driven, that, that um, I do not like to use the word liberal because I, that's a political category, but let's just say uh, a left-leaning idea of, of what the church should be emphasizing. Well, that also influences people. I do a lot of work with family ministry. I'm the oldest of four kids. When you take a toddler into something that looks like a warehouse with a big space, they're going to act like they're in a warehouse with a big open space. If you take a toddler or three or four-year-old into Notre Dame Cathedral, they're going to act very differently <laughs> because we're incarnate creatures that respond incarnately to reality. And so even a child acts differently in mass if they're in mass in Notre Dame or they're in mass is somewhere that looks like a warehouse, you know? So all these different things are what have, have all these things concocted together along with, of course, different theologies that were pushed, you know? Um, so de-emphasizing the importance of the priesthood. Um, again, not something from Vatican II, but something that was prevalent after the council. Um, de-emphasizing the importance of tradition, de-emphasizing the beauty of the intellectual life of the church, all these sort of things, added up together, led to the to the over 30 million Catholics that are leaving the Catholic Church. Yeah. In the I, United States, that is. I think yeah. I think of my own um, experience in RCIA, which is the the program where where uh, adults be, you know enter into the Catholic Church. It's uh, right. you know um, by the way, that was brought back by the Second Vatican yeah. Council. That was renewed by Vatican II as the RCIA program. Yeah, which is so, which is so but, interesting yeah. because I think of my my experience there, and uh, you know, I didn't know any better when I went to become Catholic. I just essentially went up the closest Catholic church mm-hmm. and met a lovely nun who ran this program. But it it was, I mean, it was in air quotes, spirit of Vatican II and overdrive in a sense. Right. I mean, we wheeled right. out. They wheeled out, you know, bless them. They were, it was an earnest program, you know, and I am so blessed by 
that experience. Right, right. But we wheeled out a, a, a TV with a VCR. You oh, and yeah, I yeah, are yeah. old enough to remember VCRs, I think, but probably <laughs> some listeners might not know I, what this is. You know, I saw the I saw a VCR in, in the Smithsonian one time. <laughs> I mean, we wheeled out a VCR and and literally watched these tapes from the 1970s or 80s that were very much in the spirit of. Of Vatican II, this yeah. misunderstanding, this parachurch understanding, as you've described it, and I mean, I literally here I am uh, looking to become Catholic and just enamored with the sacred liturgy and the the rites and rituals of yeah. the church and the incense and the bells and you know the bells and smells, all that aspect of the church. As kind of a jaded uh, evangelical, that that uh, appealed to me so much that tradition. Of course. And I get there, and and I, you know, we had to question, learn about adoration, Eucharistic adoration, where we believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist, so we mm-hmm. can we can literally adore, we can we can worship this, um, yes. this Eucharist. And I was so excited to go to my first adoration, and I remember ask, asking a question about, you know, how you enter the church, and I understood that you entered and you kneeled on both knees, and it's very, you know. And and it was kind of waved away, and what was said was, well, you know, we used to do that, but we don't do right. that anymore. That's one of the things right. we don't do anymore. And a lot of these things that I was excited to experience in the Catholic Church, incense and the bells, and I, I was met with, the, no, we don't do that anymore. We stopped, right. we stopped doing that. But, and that is totally, that is like, if I could put a catchphrase for the paracouncil, that's it. Yeah. We used to do that, but we don't anymore. I'm like, where, where did you read that? Where did you, you know, yeah, so that's, uh, that's if you hear that. That probably means that we're still supposed to be doing it, <laughs> you know? So, um, but, but that is an interesting experience. If I may real quick, Keith, just mention on, um, again, as a parish priest, one thing that we've done with our own RCIA program, and we also have now done it at the school, because I over, I over, we have a Catholic school and I oversee a lot of formation there. I actually teach philosophy and humanities there for the middle schoolers, sixth to eighth grade. And one of the things that we've implemented into the children's curriculum, as well as the RCIA curriculum, is an increase in sacramentals that these kids know Eucharistic processions. They go to them. These kids know how to act in Eucharistic adoration because they go on a frequent basis. You know, they know how to chant the mass parts of Latin. You know, all these beautiful things of the church. And guess what? Kids love it. We have pre-K and kindergartners that come to our school and you hear them, Sanctus, Sanctus. And it's so beautiful. It's not something that's above them. It's not something that's against them. Rather, it inspires them to this profound beauty and sense of otherworldliness that the Second Vatican Council has always longed for and desired. This is what the council promoted. After, a matter of fact, on, on this topic of music and chant, just to give proof for the point that I'm making, after Vatican II had been closed, St. Paul VI called for the publication and dissemination of a pamphlet called Hubilate Deo. And this was a collection of chants in Latin that all Catholics were supposed to know and to learn. What happened to that pamphlet? Where is it? Why is it not in parishes? You know, this this is just one other sort of practical fallout that you had the intention of one of the saints of the church, St. Paul VI, an incredibly holy and brilliant man. You had the intention of Vatican II, and it was never actualized for many Catholics throughout the church who don't know the basic praise of the church and the universal language of the church, although that was the intention of the council. Yeah, it's 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 very fascinating to to see these things that have that have happened, and it's no surprise to me. We talk about the using the architecture of the church, and I I love that example of the toddler in in different uh, parish, different church settings, and and of course, you know. Of course, if if you encounter a Catholic church that is drab and like and like a a, a warehouse and devoid of the, of the sacred images and with a liturgy that's mm-hmm. that's that's lost its its meaning in a sense, these weren't the the intentions of Vatican II. But when you encounter these things, well, of course, Catholics will begin leaving the faith faith yeah. on mass for for different settings, right? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And they're leaving because they're trying to fill a void that they're created for. The Catholic Church is what the world was created for. (laughs) Okay, they were created to receive the truth of Christ and his holy Catholic and apostolic church. Right? This is why the Second Vatican Council will call the Catholic Church the sacrament of salvation. Sacrament of salvation for the world. Meaning, she is what the world is to gaze upon to see what the world is supposed to come into communion with. The glory of that it was created for by its creator in the beginning. When you look at Holy Mother Church, you see actualized the salvation of Christ. And so, yeah, it, it makes sense that when that void is not being filled in their heart by what it's supposed to be filled with, 
which is the sacraments, which is tradition, which is the beauty of the sacred liturgy, architecture, art, all these different things, then it's going to go and try to be sought out in another avenue. This is also why you've seen an up, huge uptick, particularly in the Western civilization, among New Age and sort of Eastern spiritualities. <laughs> it's been fascinating to me that they're all, that they're, you see this sense of like, oh no, you know, that Catholic Church is too mystical and stuff. But then they go and they're like, oh, we're, but we believe in the mysticism of the East. <laughs> you know? Well, that's them trying to fill the void of of the full richness and grandeur and largesse of Catholicism that has been deprived on many local parochial levels. All right. So I wonder then, and you may have already answered this in a number of different ways, and I think you have, but how can we rightly understand the Second Vatican Council and our own faith in light of these things? Yeah, beautiful. So again, the first thing is that we have to understand that the Second Vatican Council in the context of continuity. So it's not year zero for the church. The church had a 1,900-year history before the Second Vatican Council, but it's also not irrelevant to the church. It's where the church is now being guided by the Spirit to go. So that addresses the concerns of both the left and the right. So on the on the paraconciliar side, with the paracouncil, you have them saying Vatican II is year zero. <laughs> you know, this is now we're a new church. Get off the old church. Yeah, like bring in the clowns. New, bring in the clowns. <laughs> bring in the clowns. Oh, wow. That was good. I don't know who Sondheim. that I, I would be terrified of that. I'm not sure who that was an outreach for, but just on, a, <laughs> just on a side, that just terrifies me. <laughs> I'm not, I know, man. Sorry, I, just, I interrupted you. <laughs> you know, I, I would say the church has seen crazier things, but I don't know if she has. <laughs> I don't know if she has. But anyways, no, so that takes care of sort of the, the paraconciliar concern. But then also on the more traditionalist sort of alt-right concern, if I can use that kind of terminology, is the sense that Vatican II is, needs to be repressed. It's, it's irrelatable, has no purpose. No, no, that's most certainly is not the case either. This, there were things in the church that needed desperate reform. You hear this over and over and over again, not just from people now. You hear it from council fathers themselves, all of whom, by the way, were trained in the Latin Mass, who were trained in the Missal of Pius V. Right? These were men who grew up with that missal, who loved it, who prayed it every single day as priests. So if they're saying that there's a need for reform, if they're saying that there's a need for renewal in the life of the church theologically, we have them at the word, because they're in the, the context of it that we're deprived from historically. But that being said, addressing those two concerns, what can we learn from the Second Vatican Council? Um, step number one, again, I'm just going to, again, answer it in the logic of the council. With the liturgy, know the liturgy. Know the theology of the liturgy. What is the purpose of the sacrifice of the Mass? This is why the vernacular was permissible, not required, but permissible by the Second Vatican Council, was to increase a knowledge among the faithful of what is taking place within the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist, and also to encourage within them an active participation. What does active participation mean? It doesn't mean to make Mass a sing-along. Okay? It doesn't mean that we have people dancing in circles around the altar. What it means is allowing for the full undivided participation, mind, heart, body, and soul of the laity in the sacrifice of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, the Lord, and the Holy Mass. So in the sacred liturgy, know the Mass, know it inside and out, because that's a privilege that the Second Vatican Council has afforded us. When it comes to sacred scripture, how often do we read the Bible? This is something that was strongly encouraged by the Council. Reading the sacred scriptures as well as the writings of the Church Fathers, I cannot underestimate, nor can I underemphasize the importance of our time in history and the fact that we have such a wide access to the writings of the church fathers. The Council of Trent and the Trentonian fathers did not. It's not their fault, just historically they weren't there. We do, and they've been translated for us into English. I mean, the writings of Seal of Jerusalem, Scythian of Carthage, you know, Augustine, Jerome. I mean, just this wellspring of wisdom and brilliance, Maximus the Confessor, you know, all these great thinkers of the early church. We can read them, we can understand them in a way that laity have never in the past 2,000 years. When it comes to Lumen Gentium, there is a particular chapter just on the laity, very unique in church history, very unique in church history, to have a whole chapter dedicated to the theology of being a layperson. Please read that chapter. Read chapter four and five of Lumen Gentium. That's the church on, that's the, excuse me, the document on the church. Read there this, uni, this notion of the universal call to holiness, that everyone from the moment of their baptism is called to be a saint of the Catholic Church. And finally, Gaudium Espes, 
Gallant Express, I would say, is sort of the, the spearhead, if you will, uh, or the, the point, the final point of the Second Vatican Council. We reflect on the liturgy, and that's where we find our identity. We, we reflect on the sacred scriptures. Now we know who we are as the church. Now we need to bring this, this pearl of great price to the world. Um, Gallant Express encourages us, as, as, Saint, as Pope Francis says, to be spirit-filled evangelizers, missionary disciples, in the world and to bring the truth of the gospel to all the ends of the earth. Is the world better because Catholics lived in it? That's the question we have to ask. Is the world different because you as a Catholic lived in it? If it's not, then something's wrong. <laughs> and the church can never be an or a Catholic can never be an irrelevant thing in the world. So every single Catholic individually, uniquely from you, Keith, to everyone listening to this podcast, the second Vatican council says you your life, your love, your encounter with the living Christ can uniquely transform and redeem history for all of eternity because you are the body of Christ. So that's the final sort of uh, head spring, if you will, of the council. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful unpacking that. I, I think you may have answered this in, in your answer just now, but I, I'm wondering because you wrote near the end of your article and you also quote Bishop Barron. You talk about the idea of, of liberals and quotes and conservatives yeah. and traditionalists and progressives and you call on Catholics to uh, you know, reclaim the mantle of evangelization um, yeah. so as to reclaim Vatican II. And I think you may have just addressed this very poignantly, and I appreciate mm -hmm. that. But I wonder if you have sure. anything else to add on how Catholics can transcend all these labels, you know, traditionalist, progressive, liberal, etc., to move sure. forward in the real spirit of the Second sure. Vatican Council. Absolutely. Absolutely. First, we have to reflect on what the word Catholic means. Catholic sometimes is translated as universal, which, again, is more, a little bit more of a superficial translation of it, um, meaning like it's worldwide. Traditionally, according to the Church Fathers, the word Catholic doesn't mean universal. What it really means is according to the whole. What that means is the truth that's contained in the Church can address the whole of reality completely and entirely. And so to be a Catholic is to be someone who lives in the totality of being, meaning is to be someone who lives in the totality of truth and the totality of reality, which means that we can address everything. Okay. So to answer your question, the first thing that's so vital for us to do as Catholics is first and foremost to take pride in recognizing that the Catholic Church is not just a institution in world history. The Catholic Church is the single largest, most influential in the history of planet Earth. And that there is something that's been given to us that is invaluable, and that is the salvation of Christ Jesus. And that this is the truth the world longs for, even if it doesn't know that. And the way that the Holy Spirit has discerned for that truth to be shared with the world now is through the Second Vatican Council and through its writings and teachings. And so taking that to the depths of our being, taking that to heart, and really trusting that the Lord is calling us to this in, in our own time and is calling us to this great vocation, particularly, by the way, millennials and post-millennials. In the next several decades, there will be no one left alive who is at the Second Vatican Council. Pope Meritus Benedict XVI is one of the last ones. And so the question becomes, who will take up the responsibility of implementing this desire of the Holy Spirit? Who will be the new headrunners that lead the banner of salvation throughout the world that's been waved for the past two millennia? Well, it's going to be us. And so I'm working hard as a millennial priest to know the intention of the Spirit authentically through the Sacred Vatican Council. And to implement that properly and healthily within my local parochial level. And I'm going to encourage the faithful as well, particularly my fellow millennials and post-millennials, take up the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, which are nothing more than just the teachings of the Catholic Church. Take those, harbor them in the depths of your soul, contemplate them within the eye of your heart, and share them with devotion and love throughout the entire world. That's our responsibility. And it starts just on a basic level. Keith, you're a father. Very simply, it begins with you sanctifying as the spiritual head of your household, your wife and your children, praying the liturgy of the hours with them. That's something I've taught the families of my parents that's been really fecund, very fruitful. I go over to some parishioners' homes and they're like, oh, Father, give us one more minute. We're just finishing Vespers. You know, and you see these four kids with their mom and dad sitting there praying Vespers. I'm like, that's the vision of the Second Vatican Council. That's what they want. You know, families 
they actually, little boy, they actually bought him a bell. Like, and so whenever he rings it, the family has to pray. So like obedience to the bell, like St. Benedict, you know, and oh my goodness, he will ring that bell over and over and over again. <laughs> but what's beautiful is you see creating in him, they're enculturating him with the spirit of the Second Vatican Council, the true spirit that wants to know the Catholic faith and to share it with the whole world. So that's what I would say as far as the closing of that particular essay that I wrote. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of hey, course. It has been an absolute pleasure having you <laughs> on the podcast. This has been fun. It's been informative. Uh, it's been an absolute blessing. I wonder if you want to, um, your writing is on the Word on Fire blog. It's, it's fantastic. It I wonder if you want to point any of our listeners anywhere else to find anything else that you're doing oh, sure. or, or any more resources they should dig into. A hundred percent. Okay. Well, first of all, read the four major documents if I have enough. I'm hoping that through like inception, if I say the word enough, everyone listening will do it. <laughs> so if I repeat, read the documents of Vatican II enough. So first of all, read the four major constitutions. That is the one on the sacred liturgy, the one on sacred scripture, the one on the church and the one on, on evangelization of the modern world. You can find those for free on the Vatican website. Read them. So that'd be step one. Step two would be is that I would strongly encourage you to read a Pope Benedict XVI's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. The Spirit of the Liturgy is a book I think should be required by every single Catholic. I, I, out of this, out of the Synod, I just think they should just write a document that says all Catholics are required to read Spirit of the Liturgy. That would be really, really happy for me. But um, there are few men who better embody the spirit of Vatican II authentically than Pope Benedict XVI. Um, and so reading his, his spirit of the liturgy really captures what Vatican II envisioned for the sacred liturgy. Okay. Um, and the final person that I'll direct you to is Henry de Lubac. Lubac is someone who's been getting a lot of attention as of late, particularly through Word on Fire. Um, Bishop Barron has been doing several writings on him, but also others have been mentioning him a lot. He, it's beautiful to me because I discovered him some years ago in my studies but he now is coming to the fore, especially in this conversation about the proper implementation of Vatican II, because he is actually the one who gave me the vocabulary of council and paracouncil. And there's a beautiful little book that he wrote called A Brief Catechesis on Nature and Grace. It's published by Ignatius Press. I'm not getting paid to you know, push this book. So. <laughs> so A Brief Catechesis on Nature and Grace. And in the back of it in particular, the whole book is wonderful. But in the back, there are several appendices, and there's one called, entitled Appendix C that is said that's called the Council and the Paracouncil. And in there, Delu, Henry de Lubac summarizes perfectly what we've been speaking about in this podcast. And he really highlights the importance of anyone who dares to call themselves a practicing Catholic in this time need to understand the teachings of Vatican II authentically and to implement them. So um, he does a great job sort of historically outlining what happened and how the mutation and the paracouncil came, to, came to, to, to the head, to birth, but then also how to practically address it. So those are just some, some immediate ones. As far as my own writing goes, I just encourage you to please keep posted on Word on Fire blog. There's an, a lot of amazing writers on there. But um, I will be continuing to speak on this topic because it's a topic that's gaining a lot of interest. Um, and so as far as that goes, I just encourage you to please keep checking me out as well as all the other great writers for Word on Fire. That sounds fantastic. And I'll be looking for any excuse to have you back on the podcast because it's, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you, Keith. This has been a blast. It's amazing as I speak with you, brother, because I mean, you are, I think, a very uh, indicative of what's most beautiful about this generation of Catholics. And of course, to all those who are also listening, I mean, this is what gives my, my heart hope as a priest, is speaking in this manner. Because what you have here is a layman. You have a husband and a father. And then, of course, I'm sure there are many laymen and women who are listening to this program and who are Catholic and non-Catholic, who really are seeking the truth. And see, that's the most beautiful thing about this generation, is that they're a generation that want the truth and truth alone. And, you know, and sometimes they go to the extreme trying to find it. This is where you get all even the, the craziness that goes on, right? But I'm okay with that. I'd rather have crazy, passionate people seeking the truth than boring, sort of lukewarm people that aren't, you know? And so what's beautiful, I, I think, about, about your faith in particular, Keith, and those of your listeners, is that here you have a generation that truly is seeking Christ. 
that is truly seeking the truth. So I just want to say what a blessing it's been for me. And I thank you for humbling yourself and allowing me to be on your program. It's a true honor. And, and just know as a priest of Jesus Christ, I cannot thank you enough for allowing me to serve you in this way. Well, thank you so much. God bless you and your ministry, your your parish and your school and everything you're doing. Thank you so much for being thank here. You. You're welcome. God bless you, brother. God bless Bye. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you absolutely loved that interview. I did. It was fantastic. Definitely one of my favorites so far this year. I loved it. All the documents, all the information, all the resources that Father Blake mentioned are listed in the show notes. They're available in any podcatching app that you use or at thecordialcatholic.com where all of our show notes are kept. I also blog there and have written a number of articles that you might be interested in reading. Check them out at thecordialcatholic.com. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter. It's the Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And send your emails, feedback, criticisms, concerns to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing from all of you very much. Where you're listening from, who you are, what you're doing, why you listen. I, I love it. Thank you for all of your ongoing feedback. Please subscribe to or follow this podcast wherever you find it. Your ratings and reviews also go a long way to pushing this podcast out to new people, and I appreciate those as well. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash cordialcatholic is where you can do that. Even one or two dollars a month goes a long way to helping this show remain sustainable. For $8 or more a month, I can send you a copy of Jimmy Aiken's new book, The Bible is a Catholic Book. It's a fantastic book, and I want you to have that. Thank you for listening, guys. I'll see you next week, and God bless you. God bless your family. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your fasting. Thank you for listening. Guys, I'm so grateful. Take care, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.